You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hi folks, Sarah here, the founder of Live Feisty Media, the company that produces the podcast you are currently listening to. I just wanted to jump in here and invite you to our latest initiative here at Live Feisty, the Feisty Women's Performance Summit. On March 26th to 28th, we will be serving up a virtual summit like no other, designed specifically for active feisty women or anyone who wants to know how women can get the best out of our bodies throughout our lives. I think we all kind of figured out by now that a lot of sports and nutrition science studies, product and performance research is done on men and are a little confused maybe about what actually applies to us as women. So we collected experts from several arenas, physiology, psychology, nutrition science, and social sciences to get some answers. The Feisty Women's Performance Summit includes 20 educational sessions, plus networking events, group workouts, and an expo full of supportive brands. I seriously hope you can join us on March 26th to 28th, 2021. Tickets are only $149 and all sessions will be recorded and can be viewed up to two weeks after the event. For more information or to sign up, go to womensperformancesummit.com. The link will be in the show notes, of course. That's womensperformancesummit.com. See you there, feisty friends. Hello, strong, feisty women. So a little personal story to start off with this week. Several years ago, my mom was having a lot of anxiety attacks. She was having really persistent neck and shoulder pain, some fatigue. I implored her to go to the doctor. She's not really the um, sportiest woman. She doesn't like to move. She used to smoke. Not the greatest diet. So I was like, you should go to a a doctor. So she did. And her doctor said um, that she had been under a lot of stress because she was taking care of my grandmother at the time, and my dad's not the easiest personality, and gave her what my nana used to call nerve pills. They made my mom kind of sedated, not quite herself. And well, they really didn't help because she was actually ill with some serious heart disease and shortly thereafter had a massive heart attack that almost killed her. She is still with us, thank God, and she is off the nerve pills. But it was a really stark reminder that women not only experience cardiovascular events differently from men, they also often get different care than men. And that wasn't that long ago, and it is still true today. Women's symptoms are recognized less readily, they are less likely to receive the same preventative care as men, And they get life-saving procedures less frequently and later in the course of a heart attack than men. And that's not just me talking. This is the American Heart Association talking. When it comes to exercise, our hearts even remodel differently from men's. That is new research out right now. But there's still not enough research or knowledge on women in general, let alone athletic women, especially in their menopausal years. And we need that information. So 
I was very excited to sit down with this week's guest, Dr. Tamana Singh, a Cleveland Clinic sports cardiologist with a specialty interest in, yes, female athletes. Tamana is co-director of the Sports Cardiology Center at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, and she's also assistant professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine of Case Western University. Tamana provides cardiovascular care for professional sports teams, competitive athletes, recreational athletes, highly active individuals of all stripes. Her research interests lie in not only women, but also comparing the effects of a plant-based diet on all-inclusive diet, on heart health, and defining the ideal diet for optimal athletic performance, as well as cardiovascular risk reduction. So speaking of, a couple of notes before we get into this interview. Tamana and I talked a bit about the plant-based eating, and because that's one of her interests, and she is also a plant-based eater, and I talked a little bit about my own experiences with my own diet and my performance and my lipids, and I talked about being a carnivore, and I got off the show with her, and I'm like, I'm not a carnivore. I am not on the carnivore diet. I'm 100% omnivore. I eat mostly plants and some meat. Just some clarification there, because I didn't want anyone to be confused. Also, speaking of confusion, my God, we talked about weight and heart disease because it is a really convoluted issue. Tamana is not a fan of BMI, as nor am I or pretty much anybody I talk to these days, but she does use body composition as one of the metrics that she looks at in the whole picture that includes blood pressure, lipids, lifestyle, etc., This is an ever-evolving topic because literally not two hours after we got done recording, I got a very interesting study that's been making headlines this week, and I shot it to her, and she's like, wow, I have to look at this, that shows that body composition in women and what it means for the risk is different than men. The study looked at more than 11,000 adults, roughly half male and half female, and they found that in both men and women, high muscle mass was associated with lower mortality from cardiovascular disease. However, higher body fat was also associated with lower cardiovascular risk, um, the mortality of heart disease in women, but not males. So hard to know what to make of that, but the researchers are teasing it out. And it seems to be that even though visceral fat, that's the deep stuff in your abdomen is still a risk for pretty much everybody, women get protection from their uh, hip and thigh fat. You know, there's there's some sayings that thick thighs, save, thick thighs save lives. And it seems like there's something to that. The The researchers found that females with high body fat and high muscle mass had a 42% lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease compared with females who had low muscle mass and low body fat. So the, the big take home here, big take home, is you still want to keep an eye on the visceral fat. That's really not good for anybody. However, building muscle mass is your most important protective factor. So build your muscle, build your muscle, build your muscle. That is more important than dieting, dieting, dieting 100%. One more thing. We talk a lot about the classic heart disease metrics, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure, triglycerides, etc. We don't go into a lot of hard, fast number recommendations here because honestly, 
your personal risk is often it depends. So while it's important to know those numbers, it's also important to work with your doctor to assess your personal risk and make a game plan for you. She references a cardiovascular disease risk calculator that I think is really interesting and really helpful in understanding that big picture. So I'll include that in the show notes so you can check it out. Okay, as always, before we get to the show, a little weekly reminder to check us out on social media. You can find communities of like-minded women talking about feisty menopause on feisty menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have a private hit play, not pause Facebook channel where you can pretty much speak your mind on anything you're thinking of. And if you want a deep dive into all things active menopausal living, we have a feisty menopause membership where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, and sponsor discounts on all of our sponsors. So come in and check that out too. As always, share your love for the show by following us on your podcast platforms, share shows on your socials, hit those five stars, the hearts, however your platform lets you rate and review. All of this is growing the show and it makes a huge, huge difference in helping me get the best guests to bring to you. Okay, speaking of enough of me, let's have a quick word from one of my awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Hit Play, Not Pause is proud to be sponsored by Noon Hydration in 2021. I have been a huge fan of Noon for well over a decade. They have products for immunity, recovery, getting a good night's rest, and I absolutely swear by their Podium series, which include branched-chain amino acids that are super important for women during and after menopause. So show your support and head over to NoonLife.com. That's Noon, N-U-U-N, life, one word. And use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, again, one word, with a capital F and a capital M, for 30%, yes, 30% off of all of Noon's amazing products. Again, NoonLife.com, use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, with a capital F and a capital M, and get 30% off of anything you want. Check it out. I appreciate you coming on the show because Thanks for this, having me. this is such a, um, it's such a confusing topic. You know, I, I came up at a time when, when people didn't really even talk about women and heart disease, you know, it's like, Oh, women don't have heart attacks. You know, that's, that's a man's thing. And you think that that would, would have gone away by now, but I will tell you a personal story, uh, you know, maybe about, five, seven years ago now, my mother was having persistent neck pain and shoulder pain and anxiety, all this stuff, anxiety. And I might go to the doctor, go to the doctor. And she used to work at a hospital. So she's good at it. So she went to the doctor. I should have asked more questions. Clearly, Uh, the doctor put her on nerve pills because she was just, you know, maybe stressed out. Mm -hmm. Um, And she ended up having a massive heart attack. And yeah, um, like very close to not making it. She's fine now. But I, I, I spent a lot of my time absolutely infuriated afterwards because she used to smoke. She doesn't exercise. She is not the portrait of health. Like it's not somebody you could look at and, and even like think like, oh, maybe they just overlook. Like it just made me really mad that yeah. at this point even, you know what I mean? That, that yeah. we're still at this point that this woman comes in with 
what I would consider classic symptoms almost for something going on. And they, they give her like tranquilizers almost. So yeah. Well, that's, Um, I mean, that's part of the problem, right? I think one women kind of are not sure how they should really be presenting just because the symptoms are so varied. Um, And then, I mean, the onus and kind of the suspicion for heart disease in women is also lower than you would expect in men, which also leads to delay in treatment. Um, So, and plus not a lot of studies have been done in women, let alone menopausal women. So which is so interesting. I was like looking through your questions last night and I thought, you know, we have no studies, rarely any studies looking at menopausal athletes. So of course my brain kind of started moving and shaking and I was like, it would be so great to do a couple of head to head comparisons of, you know, menopausal athletes versus not, and those who are on hormone replacement therapy versus those who are not and looking at performance and cardiovascular risk. So, I mean, I think this discussion opens up so many questions for me um, with respect to my master's athletes that I see. Um, but I mean, I think it's such a great dialogue to have. So I commend you on this podcast because I agree. Like I don't even as a provider think too much about menopause, <clears throat> but now I, I think I'm definitely more vigilant about it. So right, right. Th- thank you. You know, do we have any idea why, you know, in some of the, when I was doing some of the background research and I've written on this for a very long time, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it seems like, as you mentioned, like women do have these very other symptoms, you know, it can be like crushing fatigue weeks ahead of time or, um, you know, just after something of making the bed, they're just exhausted. Right. Or yeah. that nausea, back pain, like different, they're just different symptomology. And 64% I read who die suddenly had no symptoms. Like, do we know why women do present? Do we have any idea why we present so differently? No, there's no clear, at least to my knowledge, understanding of what, if there is any sort of mechanism behind why women have different symptoms. You know, I think depending upon when women present either earlier um, with premature disease versus later in their postmenopausal years, you know, perhaps there's something to do with the vasomotor reactivity of being in a perimenopausal state or postmenopausal, and maybe that's contributing to some of the varied symptoms with respect to, you know, sweating or feeling faint or having gastrointestinal discomfort. That's kind of a bit of a hypothesis on my end. I haven't found anything to really confirm that, um, but this leads to the whole question about and kind of struggle with the fact that a lot of our data and a lot of our assessment has been on men. And so I think that's why we're so delayed um, with regards to not really knowing so much about women and how they present and why. Right. And would that also be just as a follow-up to that, why women are so less likely to be prescribed so many basic things like aspirin, statins, blood pressure medications, and to get less life-saving procedures at the other side? Like, is it just a a lack of recognition that this is an issue for women? I think there's two things. I think one is, you know, we have to be better about educating women Mm. about what to anticipate um, in terms of the variety of symptoms they may feel, unlike males. Um, But we also have to be better about educating providers to still have that suspicion when women are presenting with kind of nonspecific symptoms and to be aggressive when it comes to cardiovascular risk reduction, assessing lifestyle, you know, looking at cholesterol and doing serial surveillance. So I think, you know, it's kind of an onus on both ends, but, you know, that discussion has to start in a provider's office. Um, And oftentimes I think, you know, another difference that I've seen in my women patients versus men, you know, 
this may be, you know, kind of a bit of a gender bias, but, you know, a lot of women out there are busy mothers, working hard, um, and they're not necessarily number one on their to-do list. And that's one of those things that I encourage them to do, because when women start to actually look in and focus on what they're feeling, how they're feeling, you know, and, and focus in on those little things that perhaps they would just brush off, I think that's when you get to the depth of what their symptomatology truly is, and that can drive how you manage them. Let's, because I can hear women saying, okay, what are these symptoms? You know, if they, if they don't know, like, what are some of these more nonspecific symptoms? It's not like crushing chest pain, you know, like what yeah. are some of the symptoms that they might want to just have the radar up? And, and I, I hope that they are, they don't suddenly like, cause I, I imagine that some of them can sort of intersect with menopausal symptoms. You know, like that's the challenge. So I still want to say that, you know, chest discomfort or chest pain or pressure is still the most common presenting symptom for both men and women. Mm -hmm. But with respect to those nonspecific ones, the most common one tends to be some element of shortness of breath or exertional intolerance that is new for them. Maybe it's been progressing over a couple of years. And for athletes, you know, it may be a little more subtle. So, you know, it may be just a very Um, slight change in pace if you're a runner or, you know, a slight change in RPMs if you bike. So it's just kind of paying attention to, um, or I should say power when you bike, but just kind of paying attention to, you know, any sort of subtle changes in your exertional tolerance. Um, That's also a very common symptom. And then some of the more nonspecific ones that can mirror ones you would have in a perimenopausal state would be those things like sweating or feeling pale or lightheaded or insomnia, Um, even gastrointestinal distress, so nausea and vomiting, sometimes some nonspecific pain that you may think is musculoskeletal. So maybe some back pain or chest pain radiating to the back. So that's the challenge, right? Because I think all of us, those pre, post, perimenopausal have probably had those symptoms at some point in life. Um, But if you kind of look at when did they kind of start? Is there some sort of pattern as to when they occur? Do they tend to occur when you're exercising? Do they tend to go away when you're resting? Um, I think those types of relationships and patterns can be helpful when you're trying to delineate if it's something that's cardiovascular in nature versus not. Right. So I was going to ask this later, but I think it it segues better now. Let's talk about lipids. You know, let's talk about because you said, you know, women should know these numbers and be like what. There's so much confusion about this topic, too, and I feel like it's there's been a huge evolution of our understanding of cholesterol, right, and HDL and what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are the lipids that women should be concerned about? What should they be testing? You know, just give us a little bit of a rundown on that. Sure. I still think that a basic lipid panel is the best starting point, um, and that pretty much includes numbers like your total cholesterol, your quote-unquote bad cholesterol or your LDL, your quote unquote good cholesterol, your HDL and your triglycerides. Um, And as a provider, I'll I'll typically take a look at the total and the LDL first. Um, You know, with respect to HDL, you know, there is some school of thought with respect to higher levels of HDL are associated with some reduction in cardiovascular risk, Um, though that theory has kind of changed over the over the last decade or so. So I typically focus on the bad cholesterol. I think with regards to menopause, you know, there's some research um, out there that suggests that the HDL may not be as beneficial as we think, and that may may be related to, you know, the particular size of the HDL molecules or the type that you have. Um, So I think for me personally, 
if I see an elevated bad cholesterol or if I hear of a family history of elevated cholesterol alongside perhaps cardiovascular disease or stroke history, that'll help me drive how aggressive I want to be with um, management, whether that be you know, really pushing diet and exercise and someone who's otherwise sedentary, um, or if someone's already really optimized their lifestyle, then, you know, discussing using some sort of cholesterol medication. Um, I'm hearing that that might not be something that you go to right away. Um, no, even if the numbers are quote unquote, a little higher, is that, it, is that what I'm hearing? It depends on your risk. And we, I typically use um, a risk calculator that gives mm -hmm. me a sense of what someone's 10-year risk of having an event is or their lifetime risk is. And mm -hmm. that can help guide which strategy you choose, lifestyle versus um, medical therapy. And for me, you know, that crossroads, that is very helpful, but I like to take the whole patient into context. So looking at lifestyle, look at look at family history, you know, trying to Blood get a pressure. Sense. Where does that come into the Oh, blood pressure is another cardiovascular risk factor. So yeah, if it is sure. elevated, that's also taken into account into this risk calculator um, that's developed by the American College of Cardiology, which is the one that I use and is pretty pretty much standard. Um, that, that incorporates blood pressure, cholesterol levels, both good, bad, and total, age as well, uh, ethnicity, smoking status, whether or not you're taking an aspirin a day or being treated for blood pressure. Um, and so that can be a helpful guide and kind of give you a little more of a, a line with respect to which path you want to choose. And then at the end of the day, you know, the patient really should feel empowered to make the right decision for him or her, right? Well, in this setting, um, really her. And I have a number of patients who are athletes who, you know, understand what their risk is and may have some hesitation to starting medications, especially if they've never needed to be on them. And I think as providers, we need to help identify the risk, provide our advice. But, you know, at the end of the day, women should feel empowered to make the right decision for them. I hear a lot about the concern of statins and muscle fatigue and muscle pain. What can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so it tends to be a little more common with some of the older statins. Um, but some of the newer statin medications have um, less of an effect on muscle aches and pains. And it's it's pretty much variable in terms of who it affects and who it doesn't affect. I have a number of athletes who have had coronary disease or who are being treated for their elevated cholesterol and completely tolerated just fine. And I have several others who don't at all. So the way I will usually start it is, you know, trying something like three times a week at a very low dose, just so you can get some reduction. And it's a nice way to ease into know how this medication is making you feel and whether it is impacting your performance. And if it is impacting performance, then it's just having a, you know, good, honest conversation about what our goals are with respect to health, performance, quality of life. Right, right. No, that's great. That's great. Are there any, you know, my God, you hear so much about supplements. Are there any supplements that are, that are in your mind, beneficial? Oh. So I guess from personal experience, I still find, especially depending upon what kind of diet you follow. Um, I'm plant-based, so I take a B vitamin, a B12, and iron supplementation just because I'm also very active. And so I know I'm pretty sensitive to that from a personal standpoint. Um, with respect to the data on supplements, I think it's also dependent upon where you're getting them, how they're sourced. Um, there's some evidence or data to suggest that uh, multivitamins are not necessarily helping you as much as you think. Mm -hmm. um, so it may be a bit of a placebo effect. 
But the best way to kind of get a sense of what your nutritional status is, is to you know, go and see your primary care physician and get an assessment of what your blood counts look like, what your electrolytes look like, what your vitamin D looks like, especially in winter. Um, and especially as you're getting older, perimenopausal and postmenopausal, you know, we always worry about osteopenia and osteoporosis. So it's good to get those things checked out with a provider before you start to go and dig deep into supplements. As a cardiologist, can I ask you why you're plant-based? Sure. Um, so my, I guess my path towards my current diet started um, when I was very young. Uh, I was nine and my mom, I think, had made a fish dish and she told me it wasn't fish and asked me how it was. And I said, well, it's okay. It tasted fine. And then she told me what it was after. And I was very, very upset. And I told her at that point I was a vegetarian. And then I was a longstanding vegetarian for about two decades. Uh, and my colleague, when I was doing my first cardiology fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital, um, he gave me a book for Christmas called Eat and Run by Scott Jurek, which mm -hmm. was phenomenal. Um, Scott Jurek is you know, an ultra runner, an ultra athlete, as you probably know, um, who's plant-based. And I talked about his journey um, with respect to diet and how it affected his performance. And you know, for me, you know, I ate probably more dairy than not, you know, was not so much a big egg fan. So the transition was pretty easy. But I noticed once I went plant based, I was less bloated, I felt more energetic. Um, I found myself to be more thoughtful about what I was eating. Um, and I also generated a bit of creativity about how I wanted to recreate some flavors that I um, really enjoyed when I was a vegetarian. And then, you know, even kind of around that time, I started to run higher volume. Um, and um, just kind of higher in frequency as well and started to vary my training to incorporate more strength work as well. And I noticed that it just supported that type of lifestyle and um, really improved my athletic performance more so than I would think. And mm -hmm. I think it's also just because I felt better on a plant-based diet. So that's not to say that I don't eat my plant-based cookies and cake here and there, but... <laughs> right, right. You know, it's, I think it's just, it's a nice way to be mindful about what you're putting into your body, especially when you're concerned about how you want to move it. So. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I find this fascinating because I've sort of in my journey of everything, whether a writer or a cyclist or, you know, all that, I've tried everything. And I do, I feel better as a carnivore. I mean, I, I feel almost guilty saying that, but I grew up in this hunting family and, um, you know, I'm very mindful of where I get my, my red meat, but I boy, I do recover and feel so, you know, I just do. And I, I, I often feel like there's many ways up the mountain, but you do have to be mindful yeah. of what you eat and pay attention. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in, I guess we probably were more vegetarian than not. So it was not a hard transition. Uh, and then for me also, you know, it was a bit of a I hypothesis and a test just because there's some data out there to suggest that you really sticking to a plant-based diet can help improve your lipids markedly. And, you know, I have a family history, um, you know, being South Asian of, you know, heart attacks and high cholesterol and my cholesterol was elevated despite my lifestyle. And I actually noticed my LDL had gone down about 30, 40 points when I transitioned to plant-based. So that was a great experience for me. And I love to counsel based on my personal experience. Otherwise, I feel like I'm either being a hypocrite or or not honest. And so it's a nice tidbit for me to share with patients when they are trying to think about different ways they want to do diet. But you're right. I mean, t everybody feels different. Um, and it's so individualized that 
it really is just finding what works best for you. And, and that would be anything from carnivore to plant-based. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't obviously wading into any of those uh, judgmental waters. I just, <laughs> I think this is just a really interesting conversation yeah. to have. And, and before we sort of circle back, I want to talk more a bit about training and heart remodeling and some of these fascinating things, but what are your thoughts on hormone replacement on menopausal hormone therapy? Yeah. So you know, I think the preliminary research from probably two or three decades ago, if I'm right. The Women's Health Initiative. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much stated that, you know, it could be harmful with respect to cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular risk. But, you know, what I'm reading more and more is that it's really dependent upon timing of medication. Um, and it seems like, you know, early on may be better or more beneficial than, you know, waiting about 10 years down the line or more than 10 years down the line. Um, I still, you know, I don't prescribe hormone replacement therapy myself as a cardiologist. So right. I defer to my, you know, providers who are experts in women's health. Um, but I think this is where having a conversation with your provider is really important. And I think from a cardiovascular risk, we would probably suggest steering away if you do have a history of really uncontrolled cholesterol or already have, you know, high risk cardiovascular disease um, versus someone who is otherwise healthy and really has no additional comorbidities. I think those individuals will probably tolerate it more with without substantial um, cardiovascular risk or even risk of, you know, developing clots. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just, it comes up and, and we always just, I, it's one of those things that does seem to be very individual. But as you mentioned, what I have read is like, there seems to be a window where it can get women through if, you know, because some women, my Lord, they get migraines and they can't mm -hmm. sleep and they have joint pain and, you know, it does yeah. seem to help through that transition. And you can, I mean, we kind of alluded to this before. I can imagine it would be so difficult if you were having those symptoms that are very similar to symptoms that could be suggestive of cardiovascular disease. And it's like, which one is it? Is it menopause or is it my heart? So I say, trust your gut at the end of the day you know, more times than not, you know, I have women who come and they're like, something is just not right. And instead of looking for the objective data, you just have to trust your patients and, and start looking a little more aggressively uh, with respect to things that can be harmful. Great advice. And, and speaking of you are, we, we talked a little bit, you know, early before, before we started the show about, about your athletic self. And uh, I would love Tell because we have many runners in the crowd. So when did you get into running? What kind of running do you do? You sent me a great picture of you in like Moab, Utah, on beating everybody seemingly on top of the mountain. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were a bunch of women ahead of me. <laughs> that was just a good snap. Um, you know, I was very active when I was young. I actually didn't do much team sports. Um, I was a figure skater. My mom stuck us in swimming as well. Um, and I did ballet, uh, among other things. So a lot of individual sport participation. And then in college, you know, I kind of gained the college four-year 40 pounds. And when I started medical school, I was like, this is weird. You know, I went from, you know, I, I essentially kind of grew 10 or 12 sizes. And that was not me. And, and I knew I just, I did not feel good about myself. And so um, I essentially turned to running for weight loss first. Um, and... I think I probably lost about 20 or 30 pounds within the first six months of my medical school. And after that, I really just enjoyed it. You know, it was very simple to begin with, just a couple of miles, maybe every other day. Um, and I never even thought of long distance running until I started my sports cardiology fellowship. And I remember one of my mentors there, um, Megan Wasty, who is phenomenal, if any of you are in the Boston area, she's a wonderful sports cardiologist. 
um, she told me that I would catch the bug and to make sure that I brought a pair of sneakers with me. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I don't run more than three or four miles. Um, but within that year, I trained for my first 10 miler. It was a Soldier Field 10 miler in Chicago. And then after that, um, I thought, hmm, maybe I'll sign up for a half marathon. It's not that much more. And then the day I signed up for a half marathon, one of my colleagues here came to my office and said, what's a marathon? Like, why not sign up for a marathon? And I said, no, 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 I'm going to wait about two years. She's like, it's just another half after a half. And so then that day, I decided to sign up for my first marathon, which was Chicago Marathon. So, um, and that was in 2019. Um, and I'm a very kind of type A personality. So I was very, very regimented and, you know, tried to anticipate everything. And I essentially kind of just got injured during the race, but I finished. Um, and so I needed a redemption marathon, um, which was supposed to be in 2020. But of course, oh, all, our, all the marathons were canceled, <laughs> but I decided to do a virtual one. So I did the virtual Marine Corps this past October. And Where did you I, do it? Um, I did it in Cleveland, right by the lake um, okay. at Edgewater is kind of the area. And I just did five loops, um, about 5.25 miles. I actually did four of 5.25 mile loops. And then at the end, those last five miles are death. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to stay here and do one mile loops just because I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> it, it was it was great. It was like an hour and a half PR. Um, and so I was much closer to the time that I anticipated. Wow, then, that's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first one was injured, so that one doesn't really no. count. Um, but then after that, I just... I, f I felt really good. Like I felt strong. I was on top of my strength training. And now, you know, I have two marathons coming up this year. And then maybe in a couple of years, we'll push the distance a little. But I think the takeaway is not so much about my path of running per se, um, literally, but it's more so you learn so much about what you are capable of. You know, you learn so much about how much restriction you actually impose on yourself without even knowing it. I mean, to go from someone who said, I can never run more than three or four miles at a time to, you know, this morning I was like, eh, I'm, I'll just keep running for, you know, however long I need to run. And 90 minutes later, you're like, I feel great. Um, it's just, it's a meditative space. It's a way to really learn how to push yourself beyond limits in work, in your personal life. Um, and it's a fantastic way to grow. Um, so I think, you know, I went from just trying to hit miles to now just trying to feed my internal being and my drive. And I think it gives me the confidence to be the person I want to be in a professional setting or in a personal setting in relationships. So I think it's done a lot for me mentally, uh, more so than I thought I would ever do. I love that. I really, really love that. All these questions popping up in my head, but let, let me get to the first one that segues from from this because it it is a perfect segue to this. And this is something that I have been writing about in Bicycling Magazine and in Runner's World and you know some of my other outlets for quite a while. Somewhere along the line in the past few years, this idea of this reverse J-curve popped up. Like that maybe you running your marathon, tisk tisk, you're maybe doing your heart you know, more damage than good. And it sort of scared people, but now I'm seeing some literature that no, you know, that I think there might've been a recent meta-analysis that came out that that's not the case. And, and for people who don't know what I'm talking about, it, it, there was this idea that there was like a sweet spot, like 
going from sedentary to just sort of a moderate amount of exercise was very, very good for your cardiovascular health and, and your overall mortality. But then it turned the course, you know, once you got past that sweet spot and maybe it was detrimental to you. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so I think that comes from some of the data that we're seeing about different cardiovascular and physiologic changes um, in our athletes beyond that kind of point where exercise may quote unquote be detrimental. And you can really, if you look at the J curve, it goes from sedentary to what the current exercise recommendations are pretty much the American Heart Association recommendations of about 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week or 75 minutes of high intensity um, exercise per week. You can go well beyond that to probably maybe four to five times of the recommendation and still fall on that downswing of the curve with it being very um, beneficial in terms of reducing cardiovascular risk. I think that J curve comes from the fact that we're finding that athletes tend to have a couple of different phenomena that we could consider abnormal, maybe mm -hmm. pathologic, though I think we still need to do more investigation to figure out whether it's just a physiologic manifestation of extreme sport or is it true pathology that is really going to be detrimental to cardiovascular health. And some of those changes include more deposition of coronary artery calcium. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's literature to show that, you know, with turbulent flow within the coronary arteries that supply your heart muscle with all the oxygen it needs um, when it's working really hard, um, you can develop calcifications. But the key thing there is those calcifications are likely not atherogenic, meaning they are likely not these scary quote unquote calcifications that can provoke cardiac events like heart attacks. They may be stable calcifications. Stable. Mm -hmm. and we do, yeah. And we do have ways to even delineate between the two, um, you know, using our CT imaging um, as a modality. So that's one change um, that kind of manifested from this J curve. Another one is um, this uh, increase in atrial fibrillation in athletes um, who do extreme sports, specifically endurance activity, because endurance exercise tends to cause four chamber dilatation or quote unquote, the athlete's heart. And that includes dilatation of one of the top chambers of the heart, um, where you can. What is that word you're there. using? Because I actually don't know what that means. Oh, but dilatation. It, yeah. It just means enlargement of one of the chambers. Oh, okay. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Oh, di dilation. Um, or, yeah. I, I wasn't. Yeah, uh, exactly. Dilation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so yeah, the chambers get bigger. Your heart remodels. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's mm -hmm. exercise induced physiologic remodeling. So something that, you know, we've done studies on, we've gathered the data and we've shown that this is not something that can cause harm, but we are seeing more people. And more, again, is relative. You know, the incidence is still quite low. But there are athletes out there who can develop atrial fibrillation, which pretty much comes out from these little electrical hotspots that can be generated in areas where this top chamber is stretched and gets a little scarred or a little fibrotic. And those words sound very scary. But I do want to emphasize that you know, the incidence of atrial fibrillation and isolation of any other cardiovascular problems in an otherwise healthy athlete is still very low. But that's just one manifestation that we're seeing with extreme exercise with respect to the J-curve. You know, other things that we've noted, um, and this varies again with respect to risk in men versus women. You know, men compared to women tend to have some higher element of fibrosis or scar within the heart muscle, but we don't know, again, whether or not that's something that's going to cause harm down the line, you know, whether that's transient. Uh, so there's just not enough data to support 
the detriment of that. And then a forced sudden cardiac death is something that we always worry about. Um, and in younger athletes, typically you're born with something that can cause sudden death, but in older athletes, you know, we do wonder is this increased risk of exercise going to predispose you to, to having cardiac arrest? And that great, that risk seems greater in men versus women, but there's just not enough data to support that super, super extreme exercise is going to suddenly make you die. Um, which what, is dramatic, what would be considered is is a marathon considered extreme exercise? I mean, I would think so. Marathon that didn't turn out so well for the marathon, or the original marathoner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's probably more about volume than you know a particular event. So right. we have lots of people who run marathons who you know, go from couch to marathon and are like, you know what, I'm just going to do 16 weeks of training and, and do just fine. But that's very different from someone who has years and years of running or biking um, or skiing uh, with high volumes on a weekly basis. So it's really decades of, uh, in my mind, decades of endurance sport versus, you know, a year or two of endurance sport. I think that differentiates extreme from unextreme. Mm -hmm. I do want to say though, you know, Irrespective of this J curve, we still have so much evidence to support the benefits of exercise. So the last thing I want anyone to take away from this conversation is that too much exercise is bad for me. I think there may be a line. There's definitely a line that causes different changes that we probably would not have expected. But we, again, don't know how damaging those things really are. And it, it really may just be a finding that is there and, and should not really impact your cardiovascular risk. Right, right. And I, and I did just see a study, and I can't remember what it was called, something like long-term effects in elite athletes. It, was ju it just came out, where the, mm -hmm. where the benefits actually seemed kind of linear. They didn't find that, that curvature at all, and, and that might have been a meta-analysis, but I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up. But, but to your point, I mean, I think that people need to understand that medicine is organic, right? It's, we, it's an evolution. We understand mm -hmm. things more and more as we go on. Um, so it's, so it's just good to hear from your perspective and you are, you're not saying, oh, I might not do that marathon because, you know, because of my heart, you, you fully, if anyone understands, you understand. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, exercise is so beneficial, you know, it reduces your blood pressure, helps with meat manage, weight management, reduces sleep. cholesterol. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, exercise in itself in conjunction with reducing all those risk factors, you can reduce your cardiovascular risk by 80%. What other wow. disease entity out there can you do that for? And cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. So if you just look at, at those numbers and how easy it is to reduce your risk, it's such a tangible goal. It just requires discipline and consistency. So yeah. go out there and exercise. Tell everybody. My you audience know. is. They, are, they absolutely are. <laughs> And they are, what do you track? Like a lot of my audience, you know, they're into the whoop straps and, and the aura rings and the garments. And yeah, I got one on my finger too. Um, I love it. I, I, I do actually love it because I love watching what's, what happens with my heart rate variability and all that other stuff, you know, in respect with my, what I do in my life. And man, I see a really direct correlation between some not great behaviors, <laughs> you know, and what it does to my overall internal readiness. So but 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 at the other side, I get rewarded. You know, like I've learned a lot about myself through yeah. through through tracking some of these things. But can you talk a little bit about? I, I think that we all sort of know the word heart rate variability, and we understand that our heart shouldn't be this metronome like bump bump bump. But mm -hmm. what 
you know, what are we looking for in those in those metrics for like our heart rate, for our heart rate variability? Yeah. So, you know, the way we kind of define quote unquote normal versus not normal heart rates may not be as applicable to athletes as the general sedentary population. Right, right, great point. Typically, we say 60 to 100 is quote unquote normal, above 100 is quote unquote abnormal. But you and I and many of your listeners are probably sitting well below 60 beats per minute, which is entirely appropriate for athletes just because your heart is um, much stronger. So it doesn't have to contract as often to supply the oxygen to your muscles and soft tissues and organs as someone who is sedentary would. So, you know, with aerobic uh, endurance and efficiency, um, like I said, your heart muscle is just so much stronger for each contraction um, and it's just more efficient. So that explains why you would have a lower resting heart rate. With respect to heart rate variability, you know, it definitely is a sign if you have enhanced heart rate variability, um, meaning more profound changes, uh, usually higher heart rate variability is a good sign, but again, it's very individualistic, um, can be a good marker of fitness. Uh, and it can be impacted by a lot of things. You know, it can be impacted by sleep, by hydration status, by stress, by nutrition. So it's definitely something that you want to look at as a trend, which is where things like the Aura Ring, for instance, which I think is one, probably one of the best products out there with respect to heart reveal variability can come in hand. And it can help you, help guide you um, when you're trying to look at your exercise program and figure out, you know, when would be a good time to re- do a recovery day versus do a more intense workout. Um, and if you do see a correlation on days, you kind of don't feel so well um, and your heart availability is a bit poorer than you would expect based on your individual trend, that may be a good day to take off. So it can be very helpful um, to, again, just guide training um, uh, in general. What is, like, is heart rate variability the, the ability of your heart to respond, like to go higher and lower in? in exactly, certain- yeah. Okay. Typically sedentary individuals, and as we get older, we lose our heart rate variability. So you'll see older individuals, um, and by older, I mean, you know, kind of in their seventh or eighth decade, you know, their heart rates kind of stay where they're at. You know, even if they're walking around, they really don't go so much further up or go so much down. So being able to have, you know, good um, heart rate response to exercise, good heart rate recovery um, from exercise are all indicators of um, great heart rate variability. So yeah, it's it's a good measure of how quickly your heart rate can change with respect to stress and not stress. Excellent. Excellent. So you talked a little bit, you know, you shared with us that you had put on, not surprisingly, some some weight during, you know, your your time in school, which those is college very, years. It's very, very common. <laughs> um, but let's talk, you know, weight is such a it's such a it's such a loaded topic right now, obviously for for many reasons, and and I think appropriately so. What what do you look at with regard to weight when it comes to actual health? Body composition. That is probably the best way to figure out what is a healthy weight versus an unhealthy weight. You know, I think in a lot of medical practices, we tend to use body mass index as our judgment, and you know, even Insurance companies use body mass index as an indicator of whether someone is obese versus not, but you could have a very high BMI and be all muscle versus someone else who has a very high BMI and has a lot more subcutaneous fat. So I think body composition is the best way to determine you know, whether or not this is a healthy weight or, 
or not. And I hate to use that term healthy weight. It's more, what is your kind of muscle fat ratio? Um, but that requires some kind of provider expertise and, and doing testing like DEXA scans or, or whatnot to get a sense of composition. But you can look at someone's build and see, you know, if, if they have more muscle than subcutaneous fat, I think that's probably healthy weight for them. And if it's someone who um, looks like they have more you know, abdominal um, obesity or whatnot, then that's probably going to be a point of discussion with respect to cardiovascular risk reduction. So weight as a number, you know, I think we are all victims of trying to track our health by that number, but that's, that's definitely not the way to go. It can, it can lead to a lot of struggle, I think, psychologically, um, especially if you feel that your goal needs to be a number and that can lead to some behaviors that can actually be more detrimental than, um, than beneficial. And is it still, is it still true to say that where you carry your weight is, I mean, there are plenty of women who carry subcutaneous fat in their hips and in their thighs, and they are perfectly metabolically okay. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 so the vis we've all heard the visceral fat is worse. Menopausal women do tend to get higher mm -hmm. levels of visceral fat. Can you talk a little bit about the difference? I think we still collectively see visceral fat or abdominal fat as being um, a little more um, quote unquote risky, I guess you can say when it comes to cardiovascular risk and whatnot, than um, any sort of fat you may carry in your hips and your thighs. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if we're seeing kind of an offset ratio between muscle mass and fat deposition, um, favoring the fat deposition, you know, I typically really don't care where it is. I think that's just going to be a point where we can improve, mm -hmm. um, especially if it's in conjunction with poor eating habits or sedentary lifestyle or um, healthy eating habits, active lifestyle, but poorly managed cholesterol or elevated blood pressure. Because weight management, you know, body fat reduction can all improve blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar control. Um, and that's three big cardiovascular risk factors right there. And I'm hearing it's still just one piece of this whole picture. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, it's not just like what my body composition is, but what my body composition is in respect to those other. Exactly. Methods. Yeah. And okay. family history too. Right. So it's right. not just, right. it's just not just you, it's everybody around you as well. Genetics can be very influential especially when it comes to cholesterol and blood pressure. Yeah, I've seen the healthiest people have high cholesterol or high blood pressure. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's just, it's, it's unfortunately genetics and, and you deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. What are the racial differences um, when it comes to cardiovascular risk? Yeah. You know, a lot of the racial differences I think can unfortunately also be correlated to health literacy and socioeconomic status. Um, with respect to, you know, Caucasians versus African-Americans, since we have the most data among those two groups, um, as well as the Hispanic groups, actually, you know, I think there, in terms of percentages, somewhere in the 70s, um, African-Americans tend to have around a 70-ish percent greater risk of cardiovascular disease than their Caucasian counterparts. And I'm not sure how much of that is actually genetics and due to racial difference versus um, due to other things within lifestyle and, and socioeconomic um, status. And then the Hispanic population also has, you know, a great propensity for cardiovascular disease. The South Asian um, population also has a greater propensity for, um, for cardiovascular disease. And those things may be driven by culture. Those things may be driven by um, diet, but there's definitely something genetically mediated among all of those groups. 
And when you're talking about those groups, you're talking about them within the United States? Um, I would say United States and even global population. I okay, don't that's what I was wondering. For both, but um, that's typically what I've seen within my patient profile and within the literature. Because I sometimes wonder, I sometimes wonder if some of what we see in the United States is because you're taking people out of areas, you know, like we all, like all of a sudden you take someone who might be predisposed to uh, a certain diet and a certain lifestyle and you put them in the in a Western situation where they're getting a different diet and lifestyle. I mean, they've done many fascinating studies on that, right? Where all of a sudden like yeah. they, they don't do so well <laughs> metabolically. Um, so it's just an interesting yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, even the introducing the Western diet in Eastern cultures, I think, you know, we see greater numbers of obesity now um, in kind of the Eastern hemisphere than we probably would have if, if they were eating their traditional diet. So that I think is not so much more genetic, but just more lifestyle oriented. Uh, but I, I'm sure that, you know, what we experience within our lifestyle, the changes we make there definitely affect our genetics to some extent. I'm no molecular biologist or geneticist, but right. it's hard to believe that, you know, what we do does not impact our genetics down the line. What about sugar and salt for an athletic population? So I'll talk about salt first, just because, you know, there's probably some people out there who have high blood pressure. And, you know, a lot of times, especially with exert, uh, endurance activities, we're really trying to focus on electrolyte repletion and salt salt replacement, um, especially if you're a heavy sweater. So the way I typically counsel with respect to sodium is for anyone, irrespective of their blood pressure status, if you are active, exercising, a heavy sweater, losing salt, feel the salt caked on your face, replace those electrolytes. Do not count your sodium or monitor your sodium when you're exercising or even when you're in your recovery period. You mm -hmm. should be able to replace your sodium without causing any increase in your blood pressure that could be even if you're sensitive to sodium exactly yeah you need to replace those losses because not replacing them can slow down your recovery process you know you may get crampy um your muscles may be more fatigued the following day so from a performance standpoint it's just not a good idea with respect to sugar you know if you have diabetes and you know there's some athletes out there who have type 1 or type 2 diabetes who perform very very well for, for that population, I think it's just really important to be in tune with your primary care doctor or your endocrinologist with respect to how you want to manage your sugars when you are doing um, activities or races that are a couple hours long, where your fueling is going to be very different from how you would fuel during the day, just at work or at home. Um, I don't typically counsel on that type of fueling because I'm not the expert there, but that's mm -hmm. probably going to be something more of like a trial and error. Do you think it's a um, for otherwise metabolically healthy people? You know, we hit, we hear so much about sugar, and and you know, when you're out there training, sometimes you're taking in straight sugar, and yeah, and, yeah, quite a bit. When you're training, you know, you have to fuel your body appropriately, and I think of the macros as having different jobs. So, with respect to sugars or carbohydrates, they're there to help you with your high intensity activity. Um, and even with prolonged sports, because your brain is driven by glucose, it lives on sugar. You need to replace those stores. Um, so sugar is your friend. And I think if you're not training and you're sedentary and you have like 10 gels next to you and choose to eat them, that may not be the healthiest thing. <laughs> your, your gut will not like it either. <laughs> but, if, but if you're going for six or seven hours, like you need as many gels as possible if that's your thing. So I, I don't, I don't monitor. I say fuel appropriately, fuel aggressively. 
because I think we've all been there when you bonked and it is horrible. Like your body needs sugar, your body needs carbs. And I tell every athlete, especially my collegiate athletes, do not be afraid of carbs. You know, when we think about fats and proteins, fats are great for kind of that low intensity, sustainable exercise and proteins are fantastic for recovery. Um, but yes, you need your carbohydrates. I think from a dietary standpoint, when you're not exercising, you know, complex carbohydrates, complex sugars, like whole foods, fruits, vegetables are really good for you. You know, I always say kind of try to stay away from the processed stuff, meaning, you know, the bagged and box items or, you know, the refined sugars and stuff like that. But I would not be afraid of sugar when you're fueling. If you are having some hesitation and you feel like you don't want to do the gels, but you'd rather do real food, uh, real foods, um, just so you can get some of that kind of complex and simple carbohydrate combination, um, just try it out and see how you tolerate it. But take it all in. Excellent, excellent advice. So, do you have any? I'd like to uh, just give our our audience just a little few take homes. Like what? What are the the top things that you tell people that they should do? You know, I, th- I think stress is a big one. And maybe maybe before we do take home, maybe talk about stress a bit. What is, what is your thoughts on the relationship of stress and heart disease? Especially, you know, I think women in midlife and menopause is a big factor. Oh, yeah. I mean, menopause is a stressor, right? Yeah. Especially because your body is changing. You know, there's hormonal balances going on. And I think whether you like it or not, the people around you are also noticing those changes. And so I can imagine that you're feeling off and people around you probably feel like you're off. And and that's a huge stressor in my mind. Stress can impact us by raising our blood pressure, raising our heart rate. Um, and those things, even if they're up and down, you know, if you're more high than not with respect to blood pressure, you know, that can cause the arteries to stiffen and not be as pliable to dilate when you need more oxygen and blood flow to those muscles. And so that can lead to chronic hypertension, chronic high blood pressure changes, which increase your cardiovascular risk. Um, You know, stress can contribute to poor sleep. Stress can contribute to weight gain and releases of cortisol, kind of that stress hormone, which can contribute to weight gain as well. And we talked about how weight management is very important for cardiovascular risk reduction. Um, So I think especially when you're kind of going through your perimenopausal stage and even after and for those before, finding a way to mitigate stress, finding solutions, whether they be, you know, breathing techniques or meditation or, you know, sitting in a closet for 10 minutes while everybody outside is screaming, (laughs) it all comes down to making yourself number one on your to-do list. And I steal that from Michelle Obama, but I don't think... I have left one visit with any of the women that I see without saying that if you make yourself a priority, you will recognize the triggers for stress and you'll be that much more able to handle ways to reduce that stress, keep your blood pressure nice and low, keep your heart rate nice and low, um, and just kind of keep your homeostasis within your body so that these risk factors that can kind of come out that you don't really feel um, can be well controlled. Excellent. So take home advice is uh, exercise, lower your stress, fuel your exercise. I mean, this is all very, I mean, stuff we know, right? But it's, um, but we don't always do. Yeah, it's just, you know, treat your body how with how you want to use it, right? So be very mindful about what you put in your body and be conscious of how you want to move your body. 
And there's no one out there to say that you cannot continue to exercise in your fourth decade, fifth decade, sixth onward and whatnot. I have people in their 70s and 80s who still run marathons, who still do century rides and are doing great. Yes, there may be some limitations as you get older. You know, we all will feel some muscle aches and pains or, you know, some changes that we we can't prevent. But at the end of the day, diet and exercise are two of the easiest things to manage and be disciplined about to really reduce your cardiovascular risk. And just treat yourself right. Make yourself a priority. Don't be afraid to fuel, you know, don't think of yourself as a number. Think of yourself as a person who is so multifaceted um, than someone who I hope really just wants to be proud of themselves and be a positive source of energy within our world and motivate those who are younger than you. You know, a lot of young girls out there are emulating the people we see, you know, people like Des Linden or, you know, people who are big podcasters and runners like Lindsay Hine or Ali Fellow. Like, there's so many women out there who I think are being highlighted within our sports that it's just great motivation for our younger generations to feel strong, be strong, feel empowered, not to think so much of how they look, but more so how much power and strength they feel. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need and track my recovery, sleep and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you it works. Okay, that was our show. Join me next week for a very, very spirited discussion with Evelyn Triboli, the founder of Intuitive Eating. We get pretty riled up and Evelyn has a lot of great, very timely advice. You will not want to miss this one, I promise you. So until next week, as always, Stay feisty, my friends. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. 
follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.